Hello, and welcome to the Clearfort Community Church Podcast. Our hope with this podcast is that you would be encouraged by the weekly teaching from God's Word, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day of the week. To learn more about Clearfort Community Church, go to clearfortchurch.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Clearfort Church. Now, let's jump into this week's message. How's everybody? Doing good? Brave the cold? Brave the colder weather to come out this morning? It's good to see y'all. Hey, we are in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. This morning, you should have a scripture sheet in front of you, and we'll, we'll cover that in a moment. But just a quick note. So as Jeff mentioned, we're doing communion this morning. We're taking the Lord's Supper as a body, and which is awesome. Thank you, Sloan. That's great. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a really sacred thing. We see that in Scripture. Jesus did it with his disciples the night before he was betrayed and uh, went to the cross. He said, as, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, right? It's a very profound reality that although these are just crackers and grape juice up here, they represent something far, far deeper and more profound. And as we come into this time of communion, we put it in the email this week, but I wanna encourage you now, as you listen to the message, also be prayerful. Be prayerful for your own heart. What do I have to confess before the Lord? What am I holding on to that I need to let go of, whether that be uh, unconfessed sin or something else in your life or maybe an unreconciled relationship that exists? God cares about these things, and he wants you to come into communion with a clean heart, a clean conscience. So as you listen to the message, part of what I encourage you to do is pray. Get with God and seek what he might have you do before you take communion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we shouldn't take communion, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner, right? And so here's my encouragement to y'all to not take it in an unworthy manner. Definitely be cautious and approach God and seek uh, what you have to maybe confess or something in your life that you have to get with him about before we jump into that time. So get your hearts ready for that. This morning we're talking about what is a Christian? And I know some of you are probably thinking, wow, I got out of bed this morning, I put on clothes, I braved the cold to come to church to hear what is a Christian? Maybe the simplest question, one of the simplest questions we could ask, right? I'm sure a lot of you in the room could answer that question for me. You can come up here and preach the rest of the message if you want to. Uh, But it sounds like such a simple question, right? But in actuality, it is so profound, and we're going to cover that in just a moment. I really believe that the Lord can and will use this message, not because I'm preaching it, but because of his power through his Holy Spirit that dwells in y'all to remind us of his truth and to encourage us in the path forward. I really believe this can be such a profound time for us if we're willing to open up our hearts to what he wants to do in us as he purifies his church. So I have two goals this morning, okay, two goals. One is I wanna teach you through this text. I don't wanna leave here without helping you know your Bibles. That's part of the reason that preaching exists. But the other thing I wanna do is I wanna preach on one verse, and it's the verse underlined in your sheet there. It's Acts 11, verse 26. It says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We're gonna talk this morning about what is a Christian And why is that so important? Why spend a Sunday message on a question such as that, such a simple question, right? So those are my two goals. And in jumping into Acts, just like any other historical book, it's important for us to remind ourselves of the context of how we got here, 
right? Other things you could approach, like a letter of Paul, you could probably just pick a chapter and read it and take it for what it is. But in a historical book like Acts, it's important that we set the scene. We familiarize ourselves with the context. I've done this before. I'll do it again. I'm going to give you a really high-level overview of the book of Acts so that you can know how we got to this place. And it's going to help you put yourself in these shoes, the shoes of people who would be in this uh, section of Scripture. So, In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus resurrects. He rises from the tomb. He spends time with his disciples. And in Acts 1.8, he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where the church currently was, and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see this concentric circles of the gospel that expand. Jesus' promise is that my gospel is going to expand, right? And we see in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit descends, the church as we know it is enlivened and given life and started, and the church is growing. It's adding thousands to their number. Day after day, people are coming to be saved. Miracles are happening. Healings are happening. All these things are taking place. In Acts chapter 7, we see a really faithful man named Stephen who decides to share the gospel with the Jewish people to try to convert them, and instead he's stoned to death, right? He's killed by the Jewish people. We see that Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul, was part of that crew that approved of his execution, that approved of all the persecution that was happening. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see that because of that death of Stephen, the death of this Christian martyr in Jerusalem, that the church scatters, that early Christians, early disciples scatter into surrounding regions, which is actually amazing if you think about it because that very scattering after that evil event that killed a faithful man is what uh, promoted and fulfilled Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is that the gospel would have more far-reaching implications than just Jerusalem, right? It would spread. It would go to the uttermost parts of the world. And so Jesus, his promise was fulfilled. In Acts 9, we see the conversion of Saul into Paul. He becomes a Christian. He starts faithfully sharing the gospel. In Acts 10 and 11, here's kind of where it it tunes into where we're about to be. In Acts 10 and 11, Jeff just preached on this last week. It's the message of Peter and Cornelius. The gospel had not yet gone to Gentiles, and aren't we thankful that the gospel came to Gentiles? Amen? We're all in this room. If I'm not mistaken, all of us in this room are probably Gentiles, right? And I'm thankful that the gospel came to us. It's Acts 10 and 11. that It is this message of the gospel coming to us. So in Acts 10, Peter receives this vision from the Lord where God tells him, hey, nothing is unclean. Don't call it unclean. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. Peter, it took him a little bit to understand this message, but God brings Cornelius and his household to Peter. And Peter in a moment understands the gospel needs to go to them. He shares the gospel. They're saved. Cornelius and his household, the household of Gentiles. And the spirit descends and they're speaking in tongues. And it's a revival. It's it's an amazing story. And that's what leads us in to this moment in time. So Peter comes to the church. He says, hey, this sounds crazy, but the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Let me tell you this story. And he shares the story and the church, the, the apostles say, well, praise be to God that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So I'm going to do this a little bit differently because I'm preaching on just one verse. I'm going to walk you through this text verse by verse. And we're going to kind of teach as we go. Very high level, nothing too in-depth. But let's uh, get our scripture sheets in front of us and dive in. Acts 11, verse 19. 
So it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Acts chapter seven and eight, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These are places a couple hundred miles from Jerusalem. Phoenicia's in modern day Lebanon. Cyprus is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Antioch, where, the, where we're gonna be spending our time today, is in modern day Syria. And they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, that is the Greek-speaking Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And it's clear that God loved this. He was pleased because the next verse says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So if you remember, although the church scattered in Acts chapter 8, the apostles remained in Jerusalem. So that was still the center of the church. So the apostles were there. The report of what was going on in Antioch came to the apostles in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch to validate what was going on. Basically, this is a, hey, Barnabas, can you go and check this out? We hear rumors of this revival happening. Can you go see for yourself what's going on and come back and report it to us? And remember our friend Barnabas from Acts chapter 4, the son of encouragement? And, and boy, is he ever. If you're looking for someone in your Bible apart from Jesus to follow and to model your life after, I, Barnabas would be a good one for sure. Uh, so Barnabas goes to Antioch, and it says in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. It led him to rejoice. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So in Acts chapter 9, Saul, Paul is preaching the gospel, and the Jews want to kill him. So his Christian brothers, it says they took him away and they sent him to Tarsus. So he's in Tarsus and Barnabas goes to look for him. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. They were discipling others, teaching them about Jesus. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. More on that in a moment. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They were moved by their love. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together before we jump in. Well, God, we love you. We are so grateful that we get to gather as a church family this morning. We know that it's not, uh, this is not common throughout the rest of the world, God, especially in the Middle East, especially in uh, what's going on in, in Israel and Gaza right now. We, we just know how fortunate we are that we get to gather and we get to, we get to rejoice in you. Uh, we don't have to fear. We just get to celebrate you, God, and I thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for this topic of what is a Christian. And I just pray that you would do through me and in me what I am just not capable of doing on my own, Lord. Just pray that you'd give me the words to speak. Pray that you'd give hearts and ears to listen and to hear whatever it is you want us to hear. And I would invite you, if you're willing, would you take a moment and just pray to God and ask him to teach you something this morning and ask him to, to not leave you the same as you came in, but to, to transform you in this time.
God, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for the gift of your Holy Spirit that dwells in your people, and it empowers us for ministry. It leads us to worship, and uh, thankful for Jesus, thankful for his death on the cross for our sin. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we go by a lot of titles in life, don't we? Do you know the titles that you go by? I'll give you a few examples from my life. Uh, I'm Faith's husband. I'm Mila and Jude's dad. I'm a member of Clear Fork Community Church, right? These titles that we can take on, they mean something to us. They mean something to others around us, right? How about this one? I'm an Aggie. Anybody out there? All right, I like it. I was expecting that. So what's funny about that one is that means something to me and it means something to all of you. Either you love it or you absolutely hate it, right? And that's the, that's the mixed response you get when you share something like that. But we go by titles in our lives that we take on and they mean something to us and they mean something to those around us. And a lot of us in this, in this room this morning call ourselves Christians. That's a title that we have taken onto our lives. What does that mean? What does the title Christian mean? Why is that important? And what does it mean to the people around us? And that's what we're talking about this morning. So in this text, for the first time as we know it in in the Bible and in the history of the world, the term Christian is used to describe God's people. The term Christian is used to describe God's people. And uh, it, it is a profound reality. We might just skip over this verse as we're reading through our Bibles, but I wanted to hone in here on what is a Christian? Why is that important, right? What does the title mean? What does the word mean? So in the Greek, as I research this, uh, the, this is the only Greek lesson I'm gonna give you today, okay? Uh, so don't be afraid. But in the, in the original Greek, it's a combination of two words. It's, it, the, the word is Christiano, Christianos, and it's Christ and Tion. So Tion means little, Christ means anointed one. So the, the term Christian, the Greek term Christian literally means little anointed ones, okay? And now before you take that and think that that's super heartwarming or epic or it's awesome, something you're gonna cling on to today, uh, not so fast because the Greeks were notorious. We know this from church history. The Greeks were notorious for creating a title to actually mock and insult those who they created the title about. There's several examples of this in church history where the Greeks created a title to describe a certain group of people and it was not meant to be encouraging to them, let's say. It was meant as a mock, as an insult, as a persecution of sorts, as a ridicule. And that's exactly what this term was created to do, okay? So again, before you think, oh man, first time that Christian is used in the Bible, this is awesome. It was a term used to ridicule and to mock the little anointed ones. And there's a couple more examples in our New Testament of the word Christian, okay? Uh, there's an example, uh, it's this, this is the first time in the book of Acts chapter 11. There's another time later in Acts where Paul is before King Agrippa and he's, he's uh, on trial and King Agrippa says to Paul, would you in a short time convince me to be a Christian? And King, what King Agrippa is saying is, hey, I know the reputation that that title carries. Are you really serious that you're trying to convince me to be one of them? And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says to the Christians, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. 
Why would Peter say it that way? Why would he say that? It's because this term was associated with mocking, with ridiculing God's people. Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And so we see that this term Christian was originally created to mock or insult. And why do I share that? Well, it's because it's very different than how we view it in our Western context, right? Especially in the Bible Belt, especially in a place like Fort Worth, Texas, where there is a lot of cultural Christianity. We don't view the term Christian like it was originally intended. The, the Christians back in this day were not cool. They did not use this term to fit in or gain a social standing, but that's what's true here in the Bible Belt. And why is that? I think it's because we've lost sight of so much of what it means to actually be a Christian. We're going to get to the definition of a Christian in just a moment. But we, and I'm not saying everyone in this room, but our culture most definitely has lost sight of what it means to actually be a Christian. Virtually everywhere else on earth, apart from the southern U.S., being a Christian is not cool. It's not a status symbol. It's not something we tack onto our lives as an accessory that we can just use to join a church and fit in and make friends. But it is here. It is here. Isn't that, isn't that ironic that the place called the Bible Belt would be the place where so many people profess to be Christians, but actually so few are living like Christians? Isn't that crazy? So we've lost sight of so much, and we sometimes, sometimes in our lives, uh, here in the Bible Belt, Southern U.S., cultural Christianity, we're Christians because our parents were. We're Christians because it's just what you do. I'm an American. I'm a Christian, right? It just comes out, right? When we're asked about it, we're, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? But it couldn't be further from the heart and message of Jesus. I think that there's something we can see in the scriptures this morning from Jesus himself that would show us that a Christian is not something to, uh, to put us in the center of society or make us fit in. It actually marginalizes us, pushes us to the fringes of society, but that's actually a good thing. That's the encouraging part of this morning as well. So with all that in mind, what is a Christian? My first point this morning is what is a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Jesus. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. That sounds so simple, but it is so profound. Jesus, in the same way that when he carried on his earthly ministry and he came to Matthew's tax booth and he said, follow me, and Matthew got up and physically followed him. Or uh, Peter and his brother Andrew, they were fishing and Jesus came to them and said, follow me, and they dropped their nets and they rose and they followed him. We see Jesus commands that those who would come after him would follow him, right? Well, what do we do now when the physical Jesus is not here on earth in the same way that his disciples saw him. Well, we see in John chapter 20 and 21 when the resurrected Jesus comes to Peter. It's that incredible story of Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Well, part of what Jesus tells Peter is the death that he's gonna die for Christ's name. And Peter says, well, what about John? What about this other Apostle, what, what's going to happen with him? And Jesus says, what difference does that make to you? You follow me. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in his resurrected state that we are not just to follow him when he's physically alive, 
but when he has risen as well. We are to follow Jesus that hasn't changed from his earthly ministry until now. It might look a little bit different, but it hasn't changed. We are to follow Jesus. So a Christian is a follower of Jesus. And before we start to unpack more of what that might mean, I want to say something, okay? There's a a host of people in this room that are all over the spectrum in regard to following Jesus. And I wanna say this, some of you in this room this morning are following him wholeheartedly. And what I pray that you hear from this message and what the spirit would encourage you toward is just like Barnabas saw the grace of God and was glad and has exhorted them to remain faithful. That's my prayer for you as well. That those of us in the room that are confident that we're following Jesus wholeheartedly would receive encouragement from this message. Not a rebuke, but encouragement to keep going. Just like Barnabas said to these early Christians, keep going, I'm so proud of you, right? That's my message to you. But for those of us in this room who have either lost sight of what it means to follow Jesus or haven't known at all, This message, I pray, is used by God to be a stern warning to you, but also a stern encouragement to you to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus wholeheartedly. So uh, Jesus said a lot of what it means to follow him. We're going to get to the back of this scripture sheet in a moment. I put some verses on there about following Jesus, and we're going to cover those here in just a moment. But he said things that were crazy. I mean, if you examine Jesus' statements about following him, Jesus, uh, for a lot of us, for a lot of cultural Christianity or Bible Belt Christians, Jesus is just this cute little guy that we tack onto our lives and we say good things about him. He's my friend. He's with me everywhere I go and I'm, I'm good with Jesus. But do we really know, have we really seen, have we really examined his crystal clear and very hard statements about what it means to follow him. That's what this message is about. He said that those who wish to deny, those who wish to follow him should deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow him. That's a hard statement, isn't it? That those who would not take up their crosses and follow him are not worthy of him. But what do we see here? What do we see maybe in DFW or cultural Christianity? is we see a lot of weak and watered down Christians, maybe some in this room, whose faith really is not tested on a daily basis because of where we live, who we're around, how we spend our lives. We see Christians who don't really want to serve the church. They just wanna say they go to one. I don't know if that resonates with anyone in here. We see Christians who say that they're following Jesus, but they're not following Jesus. They're not following him. And to be clear, I'm not saying that these people aren't saved necessarily. They could very well be saved. I'm just saying that they're not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to offer them and they're certainly not being obedient to his command to follow him. And so we definitely see something different here in the Bible Belt. So Christians, as we see in scripture, are Jesus' followers just like Matthew, just like Peter and Andrew and everyone else that Jesus told to come follow me. Just like early Christians in the book of Acts were Jesus' followers. They were marginalized to the fringes of society. They didn't fit in with the title of Christian. It was a mock. It was an insult. It was a ridicule to them. But they held their ground. They suffered as a Christian. And their faith was tested, but it was proven genuine. So how many of us in this room 
can confidently say that we follow Jesus, that we're following him day after day, that we have a intimate, personal relationship with him by faith, that we abide with him, that we talk to him as our friend daily, that we have a personal connection and communion with him, that he meets our greatest needs, that we go to him with our struggles, that his love is sweeter than honey for our souls. How many of us can say that? I know I struggle from time to time to say that. I don't know about you, but I do. So we have to see Jesus, his words in the gospels, what he said about following him, and we have to see who Jesus is in the Bible. We cannot make up our own view of Jesus and just say he's this cute little guy that I tack on in my lives. We have to let the scripture and what Jesus said about himself to inform our view of him, and that's exactly my intention with the back of your scripture sheet here. So let's turn over and, and see some of these verses, okay? These are certainly these categories of Jesus, if I can even say that, these categories of Jesus are not meant to be exhaustive. Jesus is certainly more than these three things. He is certainly more. But as I was preparing for this message of what it means to follow Jesus, three things came to mind, savior, master, and friend. And if we get those out of perspective with what Jesus teaches, we are not living our Christian life to the fullest extent. We're not. Some of us may be seeing him clearly in one of those dimensions and not in another. So this, the intention of this is to say he's all three and more. But for the purposes of these scriptures, he's all three of these, okay? So let's look at these together. John 8, verse 12, is Jesus as Savior. <clears throat> he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want to speak for a moment about Jesus as Savior. For those of us in the room, maybe there are some here this morning who are not Christians, and I want to invite you in to Christianity this morning. I want to share with you that Jesus is the Savior and the light of the world. That you, as you sit there, just like all of us, we are imperfect people. And before a holy God, we need his grace. We need his grace to be saved for eternity. And we need his grace to be saved for a personal relationship with him in our daily lives. So I want to invite you, any of you, if you're willing to pray that today, would you come talk to me after? I would love to speak to you. But Jesus as Savior is first and foremost the foundational thing we need to recognize before we get to any of these other categories, right? Jesus as Savior. He died for your sin. He hung on the cross for you. His blood was shed for you so that you could be set free from your sin and be put into an eternal relationship with him. So he's Savior. He's not only Savior, but he's Master. He is the Lord of our lives. He is Adonai. He is Master, right? Look at Matthew 16, 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He is master. He determines our direction. Look at Matthew 10, 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He is master because he determines our direction. We submit to him as our authority, our guide for all of our life. What he says goes. And he's also friend. Isn't that good news? He's not just savior. He's not just master but he's friend. 
Look at John 15 with me. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. He's friend because the Holy Spirit literally lives inside of you. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, his Holy Spirit lives in you. And it gives you the type of relationship where you can, like Hebrews says, approach the throne of God with confidence. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. He is personal. Jesus is personal to you, Christian. He is a friend. He's someone we can talk to. He's someone we can hear from. He's our closest friend who meets every single need that we have in our lives. And when we get that off, Uh, When we lose sight of one of those three things that Jesus is to us, Savior, Master, Friend, our lives are out of sorts with what Jesus has for us in abundant life. So let's say we get him, we get get this kind of off and we see him as Savior, but we don't see him as Master and we don't see him as Friend. Well, we won't have a deep personal relationship with him. That comes through having a friendship with God, with Jesus. We'll see his commands as burdensome because he's not a friend who's also a master. He's not a friend that's bidding us into this master-servant relationship with him. We'll become weak and watered down. People who could share the truth of the gospel, but don't live them out. Doesn't that sound like the Bible Belt to you? When we see him as master, but we don't see him as savior or friend, we're going to become self-righteous, probably. We're going to be inwardly condemning of ourselves for our own faults because we don't see that grace is available to us. And we're going to equally, if not more so, condemn others for their flaws and their faults. He's not going to be friend to us or savior. And lastly, if we see him as friend, but not as savior or master, then Jesus is just this cute little guy that we tack onto our lives. He holds no authority or dominion over our lives. He doesn't command what we do. We're cool with Jesus. I just don't like when he tells me to do stuff, right? We don't quite grasp the reality or the wickedness of our sin before God, our need for a savior and our need to follow him. So why I say all of this and why I chose to break it down in this way is as I was praying through this message, as I was thinking through it, it occurred to me that a lot of cultural Christianity loses sight of one of these, if not more, aspects of who Jesus is. And we need to be familiar with all of it. And it's not just because we created these titles that we want to know him as such, but because it's his very words spoken in the gospels that he says about himself and what a relationship with him would look like. We wanna be all about what the word of God says. I didn't create these titles to mislead you. They are backed up by the scripture that's on the back of this sheet. And so do you see Jesus like this? Do you see him in these ways? Or is something else clouding your perspective, right? Is something else hindering you from following him in this way? My second point this morning is what keeps us from following Jesus. So we've defined a Christian as a follower of Jesus. What keeps us from following Jesus? Well, I think overall, what keeps us from following Jesus is our life objectives are too small. We don't see him as worthwhile. 
We don't see Jesus as worthy of every single breath we take, as worthy of going to the grave for him, like Christians in the Middle East do, that are getting beheaded. We don't see him like that. Like C.S. Lewis said, we're like a child that is playing in the mud, thinking we're having the time of our life, but an extended beach vacation is available to us just down the way. And we're missing it. We're choosing little vain pleasures over Jesus and the the author of joy, the author of life, the one who came to give that for us. So like I said, sometimes Jesus is just this cute little guy that we tack onto our lives. If our life was a pie chart, Jesus would have just a little sliver after we've already occupied all the rest of it. We've put our marriage in there. We've put our work in there. We've put friendships in there. We've put money in there, career status, you name it, anything else. And then, oh, okay, I got 2%. So let me just throw Jesus in there, right? We treat it sometimes like a pie chart and we give him just a little sliver. Well, sometimes what keeps us from following Jesus is that we use him. We can tend to use him. And what do I mean by that? Well, we, use, we can use Jesus. We can use this title of Christian to fit in, to gain a social standing, to make our lives feel better because I'm just calling myself a Christian. I belong to a church. We can use him to answer our rare, desperate prayers that we just heave up to him. We're not used to praying, but if a, if a situation gets bad enough, yeah, we'll pray. We'll throw up those rare prayers, but we have no personal interaction or relationship with him during the days. We use Jesus as an accessory to our lives, but not the main thing, not the real thing, right? And like a pie chart, he would be just a sliver. What keeps us from following Jesus is, as I examine my life and, and potentially a lot of people in this area, is we like to be comfortable. We don't like to step outside our comfort zones. Don't ask me to share the gospel with a coworker. That's a little too much. I'll talk to a coworker. I'll be friendly with a coworker. Share the gospel. I don't know. Follow Jesus as master. Ah, there's some things Jesus says that might strike a chord with me in a bad way. I don't know about that one. I love Jesus. I just don't follow him in everything he says, right? We like to be comfortable. We take this comfort onto ourselves. It's easy in the Bible belt to be comfortable. We don't want to be stretched too far, too thin. We might be too comfortable. Some of us in this room might be too comfortable. And again, a lot of you in this room are getting after it. You're following Jesus. I want you to hear encouragement from me this morning. But some of us in this room, I think what we might need to hear is that we're getting too comfortable. We've become lazy in our Christian life. We're like the, we're the spiritual couch potato. We're coming here on a Sunday. We're ingesting content. We might listen to sermons during the week. We might talk to Christians during the week, encourage each other, but we're not living it out. We're just feasting on content, on reading, on memorizing, all these good things, but we're not living it out. We're not working it off. We're a spiritual couch potato. We're getting comfortable. And we need to be reminded that following Jesus is worth it. I can tell you from my personal experience, following Jesus is worth it, but you have to make that decision between you and God. I can't make that for you. I can't control your life. You have to make that decision. And Jesus provides far greater joy and pleasure than anything else that we can set our minds to. So lastly, my third point, how do we follow Jesus, right? This is a interesting question to answer. 
because I have to leave room for God in this, a lot of room. Because based on the person, based on who you are, where you're at in life, the season of life, this is going to look different for you. But God's word does give us some steps in following Jesus. And I want to make those clear to you because they're clear to, clear to us in scripture. I'm not trying to, this isn't an exhaustive list of how to follow Jesus. That's going to depend on your walk with the Lord and you praying to him and getting time with him. But to walk you through this list, how do we follow Jesus? Number one is counting the cost. So what does that mean, count the cost? Well, Jesus is not some... Uh, he's not some master of bait and switch. He's not inviting you into a reality that once you're in it, he pulls back the curtain and it's different than what you thought it was gonna be. He actually invites you to count the cost of following him on the front end of following him. In the gospels, there's a story where Jesus says, which one of you, if you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't first sit down and calculate the cost to build it and recognize, do I want to do that? Do I have that available? And then I'll decide. He says following him is similar. We need to count the cost. He's a good God who doesn't control us into following him. He doesn't uh, bait and switch us into following him. He invites us to count the cost. And so for you, if you are not a Christian, you need to count the cost of following Jesus. You need to decide personally that Jesus is worth it to follow. Again, I can tell you from my experience that he is. He's worth every single penny, but you have to make that decision for yourself. So he invites us to count the cost. Secondly, he invites us to repent and believe. This is where faith comes in. We, if any of you in this room are not Christian, we need to, to come into a relationship with Jesus. We need to first be willing to say, I am a sinner. I am broken. I am in need of saving. No one comes to Jesus appropriately or effectively who has not had that in their heart, okay? That they confess, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of saving. We believe and we repent. We say no to those sins, those shackles that hold us down from following Jesus, and we repent from those things and we believe in him that he died for our sin. Third, we walk with the helper daily. So Jesus, if you can even imagine being with him in his earthly life, he told his disciples in the Gospel of John that it's actually better for you if I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. What an amazing thing to say. Can you imagine? Because a lot of us, we view following Jesus physically as the best thing imaginable. And I'm certain that it was amazing. But Jesus says, it's actually better that I go away because the spirit will come. So we walk with the helper daily. What does that look like? It looks like daily waking up and yielding to the spirit, saying, God, I need to be filled with your spirit today because left to my flesh, I'm going to sin. I'm going to make horrible choices that are gonna separate me and my relationship from you. And I need you. I need you to fill me with your spirit. We walk with the helper daily. Another way that looks is in our prayer life, our daily communion with him. J.I. Packer said that one of the best ways to know the depth of someone's walk with God is to examine their prayer life. How's your prayer life? How's it going? We wanna walk with the helper daily. And fourth, we join Jesus in what he was sent to do. 
We join him in what he was sent to do. What was Jesus sent to do? He was sent to give his life as a ransom for many. He was sent to serve and not be served. He was sent to love and share more of himself with others. Uh, Two other things come to mind that Jesus gave us. He gave us the great commandment and he gave us the great commission. The great commandment says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment commandment and the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them to observe all I've commanded you. We are to follow Jesus by joining him in what he was sent to do. If you would like to be discipled, or if you would like to disciple others, would you come talk to us? We go through this curriculum called Launching Multipliers, where we are, Jeff, Josh, myself, and Michael are in the process of sitting down intentionally with other men and walking them through this so that they could go and do it with others. They could go and do it with others, the discipleship process. So come talk to, <clears throat> come talk to us if you're interested in that. So that is what scripture gives of how we follow Jesus. But again, you need to pray and you need to get time with the Lord to determine what he might want for you in your own personal life of how to follow him because that's gonna look different for all of us to some degree. So in closing, what does this message mean to you? What does this mean for you following Jesus? What is a Christian? What does this title mean? Why do we tack it onto our lives? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to others? Well, we need to all pray. We need to all seek God, and we're gonna do that here in just a second. Seek him of what he might wanna do in our lives and how to follow him more strongly. I pray that those of you in the room this morning that are following him wholeheartedly would be encouraged, that, they would, that, that you would see the grace of God in your midst, that you'd be glad, that you would continue in that. Uh, this topic of cultural Christianity, as I reflected on it, it really makes me upset. And it's not an upsettingness at particular people, it's I feel upset because of this. I feel that a lot of people in this area, in the southern U.S. or cultural Christianity, the Bible Belt, are going to get to the end of their lives and they're gonna realize in a moment, man, I missed it. I missed the entire purpose and meaning of this life. And again, I'm not saying they're not saved necessarily. They might get to be with Jesus and then in a moment feel regret how they live their earthly life, knowing the glories of what I'm coming to, knowing the glories of who I'm spending eternity with, I regret not living my life fully for him, following him with my whole heart, with my whole mind, soul, strength. I fear that a lot of people in this area are going to miss it, and I don't want that for you. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. He doesn't. He wants the abundant, fruitful, godly life that he came to give through his Holy Spirit. He wants that for each and every one of you. And so would you, this week, would you be willing to step out of your comfort zones and watch God show up? I think that's one of the biggest things that we can do practically is just find a way to step out of your comfort zone, find a way to get uncomfortable and watch God show up in that moment. I think all of us can do one thing this week to make that happen and watch him show up. What would it look like for 100 of us? Probably 100 people in this room. What would it look like for 100 of us in Fort Worth, Texas to not slip into comfort, but to follow him with our whole heart? I think it could change. It could change DFW. It could change Texas. It could change the US. Jesus did it with 12 men. 
following him, if we had this room of people follow him wholeheartedly, it would certainly change the city. And so let's, let's get time with him this week. Let's pray about what he might wanna do in our lives. And let's pray right now. Um, we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna get into a time of the Lord's Supper together. Well, God, we love you because you first loved us. <clears throat> there is no true love for you that doesn't first initiate with you loving us, you sending Jesus, the divine made human in the form of Christ, dying on the cross for our sin, raising to life, being our savior, our master, and our friend. Lord, we know that life isn't perfect. None of our lives are perfect. None of us perfectly follow you in the, in the way that we're meant to, in the way that Jesus bids us to, commands us to. And so God, we wanna take these next few moments to lay before you any confession on our heart, to confess to you anything that's holding us back from following you wholeheartedly. Maybe it's a way that we haven't viewed you appropriately in light of your scripture. Maybe it's a way that we are, we know that's the way we are to view you, but something is holding us back. And so would you take a moment, would you just lay before him your heart? Would you take a moment and lay before him anything that might be distancing you from following him? Would you confess that to him now? And God, we receive your grace. <laughs> Just like our spiritual breathing, the confession is not the end of the story and praise you for that. We receive your grace right now. We receive your grace through the gospel of Christ to be sufficiency for us, that we're not perfect, but we've been made whole by the blood of the Son. We receive your grace now. And God, we pray for empowerment. We pray for your Holy Spirit to do in all of us what we are not capable of doing, that is viewing you appropriately, living for you appropriately, following you appropriately, God. Pray that for all my friends in this room. Lord, we love you. As we come into this time of communion, would you settle our hearts around you? Cleanse our consciences before you so that we would not take your supper in an unworthy manner. We love you, God. We pray all that in Jesus' name, amen. So we're coming into a time of communion and I encourage you from the front end to really consider what, what you might need to get with God on. You might need to do some business with God and I, I hope that you can take the next couple minutes to do that. Uh, for some of us in the room, what might be better than unfaithfully, well, what's certainly better than unfaithfully taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is maybe not taking it this morning because maybe there's a relationship in your life you need to reconcile Maybe there's something that you need to get with God about. If you feel peace and you have a clean conscience before him, I wanna invite you to come up here in a few moments to grab the elements and take them back to your seat. Don't take them yet. Don't take them when you're up here. Take them back to your chair. We're gonna take them all as a body together. Uh, don't feel weird if you need to bypass the Lord's Supper today because something is going on in your life that you need to take care of. God cares about that. And so for those of us that... Uh, 
uh, would like to pray, let's take the next couple minutes to let, let's pray uh, individually, silently in your seats. And as you feel led, as you feel ready, would you come up to one of these tables in the side of the room? Would you grab the elements and take them back to your seat? JT's gonna pray, uh, play a song up here in the background and you are free to pray. And as you feel led, come up and grab the elements, take them back, and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us through the Lord's Supper. Well, the night of Jesus' betrayal, night of his arrest, he gathered his disciples in a room, the upper room together, and he broke bread. They had wine. And he wanted them to recognize the importance of what was about to happen. Of course, they could have no full idea of what was about to happen, but they soon came to find out. And um, he said some weird things, like, this is my body. As often as you do it, do it, do it in remembrance of me. But we know that this is, uh, this is symbolic. This is meant to remind us of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, okay? And so Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. This grape juice symbolizes the, the blood of Christ. And when he went to the cross, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. It's your forgiveness that he shed blood for. It is my forgiveness that he shed blood for. Anyone who would place their faith in him, the, the blood of Christ, take and drink. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we just are so thankful that we get to be reminded in this time that the gospel is not just some theological idea that we talk about, but it is a reality. In the same way that these crackers broke in our mouth, in the same way that we poured this juice, your body and your blood was shed. These things are symbols that point us back to the greater reality of what you've done for us in the gospel through your son, Jesus. And I pray that as we leave here today, that our lives would be marked by following you wholeheartedly, by laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us and following you passionately. That just as the old hymn says, that we have decided to follow Jesus no turning back. No turning back. We love you, God. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Glad you were with us. And uh, I hope that you have a week full of being filled with the Spirit and following Christ. Go in peace. Thanks so much for listening to the Clearfork Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, head to clearforkchurch.org. Take heart, Fort Worth. He has overcome the world. We hope to see you soon.